This morning I do not have a passage that I want you to turn to, and I'm terribly uncomfortable with that, because I always start my message with, please turn to. And this morning is going to be quite a variety of passages we're going to be looking at. So, the first one that we will is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. If you have to have your finger in the Bible in some spot, that's a good place to put it. I was just going to jump into this this morning because we are working through essentials of the faith. And we are on part 6. And we are looking this morning at the Trinity. So I will come to it in a moment because I realize that a third of the congregation here this morning is visiting or is not being abreast of the entire series. So we have thus far looked at the adage, unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. And our intent in doing that was to set a framework for us to work through what we have, what we understand to be the core essentials of evangelical Christianity, truths that those who are within Jesus Christ adhere to and proclaim and profess, these are truths that unite us. Now, as we looked at that adage, we also saw that because there are truths that unite us, some of these truths will divide us from those who are not in Jesus Christ. So these truths are for those who are in Jesus Christ, and we have seven or eight of them that we will look at. We've begun last week looking at the Word of God, that it is divinely inspired, that it is infallible, that it is entirely trustworthy, that it is the final authority. So we've actually spent two weeks looking at that. This morning we are in the second statement of the faith, and that involves the Trinity. So this may be a little bit dry to you, initially at least. Bear with me. There are really some powerful and good applications from the truth of the Trinity, and they're ones that we don't often consider. This is not going to be an in-depth examination of the Trinity, as that would be a year worth of sermons at least. This is simply an overview or summary of what the Trinity is and the statement that we affirm. This is what we believe to be true. Actually, I don't even like that term. In the statement of faith, in the essentials, it doesn't start with this we believe. And that was one of the issues that we actually took as our denomination evaluated and addressed the statement of faith is that they basically said at the beginning of each one, we believe, and it has nothing to do with what you believe. These are true, whether we believe them or not. And I don't think we should actually start a doctoral statement with this, we believe. Yes, you believe it, absolutely. Other people don't believe it, but simply put, this is truth. And so what we are doing is we are examining the core essentials, the core truths as proclaimed within the word of God in regards to the faith. So the second essential doctrine in our statement of faith is, or this we adhere to, one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us this morning. Give us minds that are sharp and that are aware and that are sensitive to you and to your word. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Lord, not because we deserve this, but because of your rich grace towards us. We thank you for the revelation of God to man and that we hold within our hands, within this Bible, the words that you spoke, the utterances of God, the revelation of God. Help us not to take it lightly. Help us as well not to just set it aside as something that is too complex to wrestle through. And as we look at the subject of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. May we see the glory and the wonder and the majesty of who you are as you have revealed yourself. 
I pray that you would enable me, anoint me by your Holy Spirit to proclaim your words, your truth, in such a way as to bring you glory and honor and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will not examine this morning each person of the Trinity in depth as we will look more thoroughly at that as we progress through these essentials of the faith. What I will endeavor to do is to examine biblically the fact that there is one God, that he is eternally existent, and he is such in three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason that we are doing this, even the entire series, is that it is important for us, if you profess to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have owned his grace, it has been poured out upon you, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's important that you know the truth of the Word of God. It's important that we know as a body or that you in a visible local congregation know where you stand, what you are united on, and that, as the Word of God tells us, you endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're going to look at this, and we will jump right into it. There is one God. Now, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and I pray that you have, if you have not, that I would encourage you not to leave this place today before you do. His grace has been poured out. Today is the day of salvation. He is willing and just to forgive sins and to cleanse and to make us whole. Trust in Jesus Christ. But if you have, then I pray that you would inherently know that this is true. And I think that even if you have not as of yet, you probably know this to be true, that there is one God. And if you did not think that to be true, you probably would not be here this morning. There is only one God. There can actually only be, regardless of what others think, only one God, because there can only be one supreme being. You may have many lesser gods with a small g or demigods, but there can only be one supreme being. It is nonsensical to say multiple supremes. It's a logical fallacy. It doesn't make sense. We also inherently know that the God who exists must be outside of space and time to have created all that we know inside of space and time. Thus, he must be eternal and all-powerful, and he must be all-knowing. We can see that he is these things even as we look across creation around us. But beyond what we can logically deduce or inherently know about God, what does the Word of God reveal about God? remembering that we have already ascertained that this is the revelation of God to man, and that in the original writings, it is inspired of God. It is infallible. That is entirely without error in that sense, and entirely trustworthy. So what does it say about God? Well, it says a lot about God. But one of the things that it declares about God, and I believe declares very clearly, is that God is the only God. He is the supreme being. He is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 begins what is known as the Shema for the Jews and is a creed, basically, of all Orthodox Jews. And they would have recited it in the morning and in the evening. It would have been on what they call the phylacteries. It would have been on the doorposts of their house. This is important. And it starts with this statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Albert Barnes notes on the Bible says about this verse. This weighty text contains far more than a mere declaration of the unity of God as against polytheism or of the sole authority of the revelation that he made to Israel as against other pretended manifestations of his will and attributes. It asserts that the Lord God of Israel is absolutely God and none other. 
He and he alone is Jehovah, Yahweh, the absolute, uncaused God, the one who had, by his election of himself, made himself known to Israel. He is absolutely God, and there is none other. That is clearly stated in this vital passage. This passage also hints at the Trinitarian understanding of God. Though comprehension of that may have been limited until the full revelation of God was given in the New Testament, but even in that statement, we have a sense of plurality within unity or singularity. I say it hints at the Trinity because of the use of the titles for God. Within it, it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It literally says, Jehovah, our Elohim, the Jehovah is one. Jehovah, our Elohim, the Jehovah is one. Jehovah is singular and absolute, while Elohim is plural. We'll get more into that later, but it's an interesting tidbit here that even in the verse which clearly declares that there is only one God, we have plurality within singularity. We have singular Jehovah is Elohim, plural, one. The truth is not hidden in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, but it is made much more clear in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, and I'm going to read through a whole bunch of verses here. If you just want to take down the references and follow along later, that would be great. Deuteronomy 4, 35, doesn't mean just block me out while I'm reading them here now, okay? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Isaiah 44, verse 6 to 8, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Isaiah 45, 5-6. God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. Jeremiah 10.10 But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. That's just from the Old Testament. New Testament declares it as well. John 17 verse 3 Jesus said himself, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, capital Y, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. Galatians 3.20. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Ephesians 4, 4-6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. First Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Time and time again, Old Testament or New Testament, the Word of God clearly declares that there is only one God, and He is not plural, but is in and of Himself, singular. Now this God 
this one God, is eternally existent in three persons. And I'll explain that as much as I am able to after I look at the simpler fact that he is eternally existent. One God, eternally existent. In Exodus chapter 3, we have the account of God sending Moses to deliver the people from Egypt. And Moses asks in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And in verse 14 and 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. That's where we get the understanding, the God who is, I am, that I am. That's where we even get that title, Jehovah. Jehovah is literally the four Hebrew letters that in our English translation would be YHWH, I am who I am. That is where we get it from. The pronunciation of that is not 100% certain. It is likely that it is actually Yahweh. It's commonly rendered Yehovah or Jehovah, regardless of the pronunciation. The name means, when God says, I am that I am, or I am who I am, the name means that I am the eternally self-existent one. That is the name of our God. Every time you see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is the name Jehovah. I am that I am, the eternally existent one. That is how God presents himself. He is eternally existent. Over 7,000 times that title is used of God in the Old and New Testament. Every time you read L-O-R-D, all in capitals, you hear God himself describe himself as the eternally existent one. That is who he is. And if the 7,000 some, 7, some times that he describes himself as eternally self-existent is not enough for you, then I would encourage you to consider these verses. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is God who is before time. We know it existed, or even we understood that time existed. He was God before it. In the beginning, he was there. And before the beginning, he was there. He had been there. He is outside of and beyond even all that is considered beginning or ending. He is eternally existent. Psalm 10, verse 16, The Lord is King, Lord, capital J-L-O-R-D, Jehovah, is King forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his hand. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the, the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is eternally existent. 93, verse 2, your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 145, verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Even Nebuchadnezzar realized this. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, after Nebuchadnezzar came back to his senses, he says, He lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. In New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, 
probably the clearest statement of this, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Old Testament or New Testament, God is eternally existent. Now we get into the fun one. God is eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's a bit of a dilemma for us. We understand the Trinity in concept, even if we cannot define how it works. And reality is that every illustration of this falls short. God is one, as we have clearly seen. Yet God also reveals himself as plural, as having more than one person within the singularity of essence. God reveals himself as plural. Going right back to the beginning in the creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, God says, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his singular image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. That's a conundrum. There is only one God who is making man in their plural image. And it's not possible that God here is referring to us or our as being him and other angels or anything else. He couldn't be referring to any other created being or even a lesser God because mankind was made in the image of God. God wouldn't and couldn't have the same image of other created things to share with man. The necessary singularity of the image means it is a work of the one God, but the plurality shows just that, plurality within the Godhead. And that plurality wasn't just a glitch there in Genesis chapter 1. It wasn't as if there was a mistake that was made because it was just the singular God. Because we see in Genesis chapter 3 how that after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, this is what it says in chapter 3 verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, it goes on. He's become like us. God is still referring to himself as us rather than as I. Now, although there is introduction of this plurality of persons in singularity in the Old Testament, right here at the beginning of the Word of God, I don't believe it is fully understood until the teaching of the New Testament. We could look at every available option for understanding the Trinity in the Old Testament, or we could even look outside for examples. But why would we do so when we hold the full revelation of God in our hands today. So we flip to the New Testament and we see this statement in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, one of the clearest statements of the Trinity. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. It sums it up right there. It's a clear statement of the Trinity. There are three, and those three are one. Now, without getting bogged down in this, I will simply say God is one in essence. That is, in his actual being, in who he is, he is one. There is no division in who he actually, intrinsically really is. He is one in essence. Yet he is, at the same time, three in persons. And the persons of the Godhead are distinct. In other words, they are not just three aspects of one being. And that's something that we confuse it with today ourselves, very often anyways. We, we attribute to God three roles of one being, such as me being a son, a father, 
and a husband. Well, that's not three parts. That's three roles within one person. But God is three distinct persons in one being, or yet one being. I don't even like saying in one being. He's three distinct persons, yet one being. We see that because we see each of the persons of the Trinity referred to as fully God. And it's not that they are a lesser or a part or a third of God. They are fully God. Philippians chapter 1 verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father is seen as God. Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is clearly identified as God. Even the Holy Spirit is identified as God in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. This is the sin against the Holy Spirit he is speaking of. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not yours? And after it was sold, was it not your own to control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Each of the persons of the Trinity is clearly seen as God, completely God. They are unique and should not be seen as the same as the other, and yet all three of them are still God. If they are are not unique, if they are not distinct, then we have a major problem when we see that the Father is sending the Son into the world. We see a major problem when Jesus Christ said he was sending another comforter, the Holy Spirit, after the ascension of Jesus Christ. They are distinct in person, yet one in essence. The closest I have to an illustration of this, and even it fails dramatically, but the closest I have as far as an illustration is ourselves. And that would make sense because we are made in the image of God. We are one person, and yet we consist of body, soul, and spirit. And even that breaks down because the three parts of us are not distinct. <laughs> the three persons of the Godhead are distinct. At least our three parts aren't distinct until we pass through the grave into resurrection and then there's going to be a separation of the body and the spirit and soul. Regardless, we believe and we understand how that works within ourselves that there is three parts and yet one. And that is, I think, as close as we can come as far as an illustration, that there is three persons and yet one God. The Trinity. Regardless of our ability to understand it, we believe it to be so. The Word of God declares it to be so. There is one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'll give you a few more verses. Ephesians chapter 2, 17 and 18. It says, And he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him, Christ, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. You see all three persons of the Trinity spoken of there. This is a portrayal of the work of the three distinct persons of the Godhead. Through Christ, we have access by the Spirit to the Father. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Notice that name is singular but baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet one 
in essence, we're to baptize them in a singular name of three plural persons of the Godhead. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, In the beginning was the Word, and we know that the Word in verse 14 is Jesus Christ. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't have those two things simultaneously unless it is two persons who is one in essence. Another reference which is similar to that in regards to him creating, because it says that he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Another similar reference is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, where it says that he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The words are important here. Not of all creation, over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created for him, that is Jesus Christ, through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And in verse 19 as well, For it pleased the Father, God the Father, that in him, Jesus Christ, all the fullness, the fullness of deity, should dwell. Jesus Christ is creator and sustainer of all. All things that have been made were made by him and for him. All the fullness of God dwells in him. He is fully God, yet is distinct from God the Father, who is also fully God. There's a bunch more references, but I'm probably losing you here. I'll give you one last one. John 14. Jesus says, I will pray the Father. Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. God the Son petitions God the Father to send God the Holy Spirit. We see three distinct persons of the Trinity, but one God. What difference does it make? Why is this an essential of the faith? That's a rhetorical question. (laughs) But why is this an essential of the faith? Well, to start with, our salvation depends upon this truth. The truth of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yet, one God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And that gives us a bit of a, an inkling as to why it was necessary. We know that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. But the blood of the imperfect sacrifice does not cut it. Those sacrifices in Old Testament were a temporary covering for sin. Even our own life blood or that of another fallen person, could not justify us, could not restore us to right relationship with God. There had to be a second Adam, Jesus Christ, born without sin and who lived in sinless perfection and who was willing to bear our guilt. Only God can do that. Nobody else can. Christ had to be God to provide atonement for sin. No person could, but God could. At the same time, God the Father couldn't simply declare us righteous without the shedding of blood of God the Son. For to him to do so would be to deny his very character of perfect justice. God the Father sent God the Son, and God the Son willingly came and took upon himself our sin. 
Take it one step further. God the Father and God the Son could not come and indwell the church as God the Holy Spirit has today. This is a distinct property of the Holy Spirit. And so we see distinct roles, distinct responsibilities. We see the necessity of the plurality of God and yet one in essence. Now perhaps you may say, well, I guess that, sure, it's an essential of salvation, so it's important for me to realize that or, you know, I could be saved without it, but do I actually need to know that? And do I need to understand why I know that? It's important. And it's hard for us to realize this, but it's important, first of all, because it's important to understand what God is, what he's like. We need to understand what we can understand of God, and it is a way of honoring God. And we should allow the fact that God is a triune God the triune God, we should allow that fact to deepen our worship. We exist. The purpose that we were made for and that we are now redeemed for is to worship God. And God seeks people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Therefore, we must always endeavor to deepen our worship of God in regards to truth. And if we have a different concept of God, then how can we truly worship him in truth if it doesn't line up with what he has revealed about himself? And this is something that he has clearly, even though we have a hard time wrestling it through in our minds, he has revealed. So it is important that we come to understand it. Another reason that is important is because we need to understand who God is to understand how he works. Particularly in regards to prayer. The pattern of prayer that is expressed in the Bible, that we are commanded to, this is a, the parameters for it, is to pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, that is through Jesus Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That matters. That's important. God is the sovereign God of all and is free to do all that is within his character to do. But he has established these parameters for prayer. And he honors his parameters. And so if we truly want to access God the Father, that is only possible through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we come. That is in the authority of Jesus Christ. You do not have a right to approach God the Father unless you are in the authority of Jesus Christ. It is by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. You will not be able to communicate effectively to God the Father except by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. This is the way prayer works. Through the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. One last reason why this is important, and this is getting much more into application, which shouldn't be done in regards to preaching on essentials of the faith, but it's a good one, so I'll share it. We were created and redeemed because of this Trinitarian relationship that we've been speaking about. And we were created and redeemed to enter into this Trinitarian relationship that I've been speaking about. I'll say that again because it's a big one. We were created and redeemed because of this Trinitarian relationship and to enter into this Trinitarian relationship. Don't lose me on this one. The triune God is eternally existent. God has eternally been a dynamic of relationship within himself of love. He has eternally been a love relationship. In John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus says, Father, You loved me before the foundation of the world. For eternity, 
the Father has enjoyed and delighted in and loved his Son. And in creation, we see the overflow of that love. The love that is in Trinity God overflowed in creation that there might be many sons through Jesus Christ in salvation to worship and to love God. And so with this God who is eternally loving, it makes sense that he should have many others he might love. The grounds for you and I being created and being saved is in relationship within the Trinity. The love that we see there, which is eternal and perfect and incredible and awesome and beyond our imagination, is the love that has been poured out upon us. And we, in a sense, enter into that Trinitarian relationship. In a sense, we enter into that Trinitarian relationship the moment we trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we have the joy and wonder and delight of enjoying that Trinitarian love eternally. When I grasped that, it was a little bit of blowing my mind. My creation and my redemption flows from the love of God that eternally existed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I have the privilege, by grace through faith, of entering into that Trinitarian relationship of love in Jesus Christ eternally. In John chapter 17, verse 20 to 23, Jesus here prays for all those who will believe in him. He says, through the message of the gospel preached by the apostles and disciples. This is what he prays, part of what he prays. So he's praying for you. Jesus was praying for you, all those who would believe through the message of the gospel. He prays that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That is, that is saying Christ wants us to have this love relationship with each other all believers, as God the Father has with God the Son. So the Trinity is our example of love. But it continues and says that they also may be one in us. Capital U, God. Jesus Christ prayed that we would be one in them. That the world may believe that you sent me. When you are declared righteous by grace through faith, you are brought into Jesus Christ. You and I are his body. We become one in relationship to the triune God. This does not make us mini-gods, okay? Don't ever think that I'm saying that. But we enter in Jesus Christ. We enter into that love relationship that existed eternally and will exist eternally in Jesus Christ. He goes on, And the glory which you gave me, Jesus is saying, God, the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's incredible. The glory which God the Father gave God the Son has been given to the children of God so that the children of God may be one with Christ in them and God the Father in Christ. Therefore, you and I in love relationship in a Trinitarian sense with God. You see the wonder and awe of the Trinity? 
You see why it's important that we understand as much as is possible this divine relationship of three in one. We, by God's grace, have been immersed into Jesus Christ and so are in a loving triune relationship with God now and eternally. I must confess, I don't know how that looks exactly. I don't know how that works exactly. But I know this, the triune God is a loving, intimate relationship of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that divine relationship has overflowed to me through Jesus Christ. And I, we, all those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, will be immersed in that forever. The Trinity is not just some aloof theoretical understanding that theologians like to discuss. It has practical implications, and it is absolutely incredible because the practical implication is eternal love has reached out to you and I and we can know and enjoy eternal love forever not because of our worth but because of this eternal God the second essential of the faith one God eternally existent in three persons Father, Son and Holy Spirit let's pray Lord we acknowledge that your ways are beyond our ways your thoughts are beyond our thoughts there are certain things that we just cannot fully fathom and yet there are clear truths that as well that are revealed in the word of God and so where we can't understand we ask that you would help us simply to trust you we do not know how one in essence can be three in person and your, your word declares it and we see the awe and wonder of it you are able not just able this is who you are because you are God and we are not And as we look at your majesty, as we look at your wonder and awe and glory, may we humble ourselves, may we fall on our knees, may we repent, may we we turn from ourself, and may we delight to know you and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And may our eyes be fixed on the finish line when we will no longer be hindered, even in our ability to understand, but we will be made like you, for we shall see you as you are and rejoice in you eternally. Lord, we look forward to that day when you come to take us home. May you find us faithfully and joyfully serving you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.